0: So um, part of my job abroad was that I would periodically welcome auditors to come, and they would, we'd go around and do a sampling of farms. We'd go out to the places and make sure the farmers were adhering to the standards that they had agreed upon. We had signed contracts. So this was my first auditor, and his name is Fauzi, F-A-U-Z-I. And I know, that like, like me, you probably thought you would pronounce that Fauzi, but that's not correct. He, he made sure to correct me as soon as I met him. It It's Fauzi. And uh, he is from Indonesia. And uh, when I first heard that he was coming, I was a little bit nervous, because you know, living in the place that we were living, um, he is a devout Muslim. Um, He adhered to a strict halal diet, no pork. So I spent several days with my assistant driving around the city, trying to find Muslim friendly restaurants so that he wouldn't be offended by the things that we would feed him. We also had to prep a lot of the farmers and say, we're bringing this guy, he's a Muslim, he doesn't eat pork. I thought it was a little bit just kind of uncomfortable, you know, because Indonesia, the, the kind of Muslims they have there, they're very serious about their faith. But so he came, and uh, predictably, he was he was pretty reserved and quiet, um, but he was also, there was, a, there was a warmth underneath. He was a family man. He was a good guy. I remember one afternoon, I made a special uh, occasion for him to kind of have to do his prayer time in my living room. Uh, we cleared the rest of the house for him, and we ended up actually striking up a pretty good connection there, fact, we still keep up on WeChat from time to time. Well, near the end of our time together, you know, as we've been many, many days driving out to remote areas together, uh, we developed a bit of a kinship. We went to this mall area, kind of a shopping plaza, to eat lunch together. So after lunch, I had to make a pit stop. And so I go inside and left Fozy just immediately outside the door. And uh, so I come out afterwards and no Fozy. And uh, I was Okay, so I looked around, kind of walked around the corner, where's Posey? Where's Posey? A little bit like, where's Waldo? where's Posey? You know, I don't know where he's at. So I go up to the third floor to the customer service desk, and I say, I brought a friend with me, he's from another country, and um, he doesn't speak your language, so can you help me find him? So they begin doing an announcement over the loudspeaker system and saying, hey, there's this foreigner in the store, you know, and... This, this other foreigner's lost him. He doesn't know where he's at. Can, can, can anybody please help us find this guy? And that would have been great, except Fozy didn't speak the language. So, you know, what I found out later was he had kind of just walked outside. He was sitting at a table texting his wife, you know, over, over the Internet. And um, so they're announcing, where is this guy? Help us find him. And then finally I did find Fozy. But in the meantime, I got a little bit panicky, so I called my boss And my boss's name was Chi. So I said, Chi, I've lost the auditor. What should I do? So I didn't know if Fozy had fallen into bad hands or if he had gotten lost. He could have been wandering around anywhere. And I said, I've lost the auditor. And and Chi said, I don't know what you should do. Go find him. Eventually, I did find him. But what was funny about finding Fozy is I I surprised him because he didn't even know he was lost. (laughs) He didn't even know I was looking for him. And now, you know, when you and I have people come looking for us, and we're not looking for them, we're a little bit surprised too, right? I mean, we might feel a little bit nervous, you know, when they say, "Mr. Diller, and you say, "Yes," or "Mr. Tallis," we we have we have a message for you. I mean, there's a part of you that's a little bit nervous that it might be bad news, but there's another part of us that's curious because somebody sought us out. Somebody that we weren't looking for came looking. For us. Today we're going to talk about an afflicted man that was found by someone he wasn't looking for. In fact, when this man encountered Jesus, his first instinct was to avoid him. Turn with me in Luke chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 39 this morning. We're going to take in this story about a man who was found by Jesus when he wasn't even looking. For Jesus, beginning in verse 26. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now, Gerasenes was a Gentile region, okay? And we'll find out, you, know, you want to know how you know that? Later in the story, it refers to them raising pigs. So, I mean, clearly they weren't Jewish. So, this was an area where rabbinic influence would have been weak, you know. Jesus shows up, he's a rabbi, they say, so what? That doesn't earn you any credibility here, sir. So he shows up in this Gentile region. So it's a place where an outsider would have had no voice. So we're setting the context here. One time, I was in a a mall in Thailand, and there was a bank that had an ATM there in the mall. So we had to go withdraw money so we could go do a little shopping. And the bank, ATM ate my card. (laughs) Ate it. Wouldn't give it back. Now, luckily, this bank had a branch in the mall. So I went up to the branch, and I, and I went up to the customer service person who thankfully spoke some English, very common in Thailand, and I began to explain my situation. You know, your ATM ate my card, And she kind of gave me that look that I knew I was in trouble, like, <laughs> so what? You know? <laughs> What do you want me to do about it? I'm like, I'm thinking, well, this this is your ATM. I I think you guys are responsible. And and, and this was was not just any ordinary ATM card. This was an ATM card that I had had to order from the U.S. And my in-laws had brought on a plane in their purse all the way to Thailand to give me. And within the first 48 hours, I managed to get the card in. But what I found out that day, because as an American, I'm thinking, okay, now, we're going to do something about this. I mean, this is your bank. We're in the same mall. I mean, you guys are responsible, and you need to do something about this. Well, they didn't see it that way. And what I found out was, as a loud American in a foreign country, I didn't have a voice. They didn't really care what I thought. They, 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 didn't, they felt no obligation to resolve my problem. So this is the situation. Jesus, you know, as I was studying this week, I realized that Jesus is in a place where he has no voice. And because Jesus' role was to announce the kingdom of God, he would often use dramatic means to draw attention to his message. And we're about to see what I believe is an example where Jesus is in hostile territory, and he sees an opportunity. So I think he chose the most provocative opportunity available to achieve the end of drawing attention to his message. So here comes the provocative example. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes, or lived in a house, but had lived in the tubes. So here's the demoniac, you know, this is a man who's held against his will, forced to live an abnormal, lonely life. You know, in our lives, you and I feel our limitations, right? Maybe as we get a little bit older, maybe we have financial limitations or whatever, but we feel our limitations and we feel bad about that. But deeper pity, right, the deepest pity that we have is reserved for people that are helpless. And this guy was helpless. He was held against his will. He had no choice about how he was going to live his life and spend his time. You know, one thing that drew us to the mission field was the idea that there are many people still today living and dying, who don't have the opportunity to choose Christ. And that still moves us. And you and I continue to be moved by people that are hampered by things that are beyond their control. So that was certainly this gentleman's situation. Jesus found himself so moved. And so the first point is that God found someone who wasn't looking for him. God found someone who wasn't looking for him. You know, this man was haunted by his demons. Think about his life, living among the tombs, isolated from all people. In fact, there were times when we'll find where they bound him and tried to restrain him, but he broke the restraints and scampered off back to his haunt amongst the tombs. How many people in our world today live in this kind of prison? They don't even know that freedom is available. They just live haunted by their demons. Verse 28, Jesus begins a conversation. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. So the evil spirit immediately recognizes Jesus, and he pleads for leniency. You know, this is a fascinating exchange. Jesus has a conversation with a servant of Satan. These are one of my favorite passages in the Bible. People talk directly to God or directly to the spirit world. We learn a lot, and we're going to learn a lot here. So what do we see here? We see that evil, it has a personality. It can think. It can reason. It can negotiate. But in the presence of one who is greater, evil can only do one thing. Plead. Beg. When the person with the real power arrives... Evil has nothing more it can do other than plead and beg for mercy. Verse 29. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained, hand and foot, kept under regard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Now, why do you think that evil, the evil spirit, drove the man into lonely places? We see here that evil has a strategy. Evil has a plan. The plan is to isolate us, right, so that we're vulnerable to influence. James 1:14 and 15 says that we are dragged away by our own evil desire and enticed. you see that? Our own temptations drag us away so that we're vulnerable, so that we're alone, and so that we can be enticed and tempted. In the end, evil has one primary goal, and we see it here so clearly. To enslave, to have absolute and total control. You know, when you're pulled over by police by a police officer for driving erratically at night, what is he likely to assume? Now, I know that's never happened to any of y'all, and if it happened to me, I wouldn't tell you. No, it, 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 it really did. They, they think you're under the influence, right? One night, I was on a ride a along, and we went to a, a local golf course. And there was a person there who was obviously driving under the influence. The reason why we knew that is when the officer asked him to pull over, he did, right on the curb, on the curb. And so we knew that he was driving under the influence. But how much influence is too much, right? How much is too much? It was just one drink. It was just two drinks. They have had to establish legal limits to determine how much is too much, right? It's all scientific now. There's testing. There's breathalyzers. But when it comes to being under the influence of evil, how much is too much? How can you even tell when you or someone you care about is under the influence of evil? I've done a lot of thinking about it this week. And for this man, there were two things that were true that were indicators that he was under the influence of evil. One is he habitually separated himself. Spent a lot of time by himself. And when you think about bad things or bad people in history, what do you hear time and time again? I just had no idea. I mean, they lived right next door. I had no idea what they were capable of. But this is a person that habitually isolated themselves, separated themselves. This is what was true of (laughs) this man. And then secondly, he was unable to control his voice. He was violent. He was angry. He couldn't control himself. He broke his bonds and ran off to solitary places. So that's how you can tell. We isolate ourselves. We're unable to control ourselves. You know, guess what happens when I'm struggling? I don't know if this is true for you, but I separate myself. I don't want to be with anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to be alone. And you know what else I do? What do you do? What happens late at night when you're emotional? What what becomes your best friend? The refrigerator, right? (laughs) Go sneak in there, start start pulling things out, eat a little bit, go back, pull some more things out. So that's what we do, huh? And it puts us in a bad spot when we're when we're separate from people, and when we're indulging ourselves, it makes us more vulnerable to the influence. Verse thirty. Jesus asked him, "What is your name?" Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. You know, Jesus demanded his name so he could command him directly. And I think the, the, the evil spirit here is sidestepping. He's saying, oh, 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 our name is Legion. In other words, I'm not going to tell you my name. But you know what Legion is? In the Roman army, that was the largest, you know, body of soldiers. It was between three and six thousand. So there were between three and 6,000 evil spirits inhabiting this one person. And his life was totally a mess. He did not have a choice. Verse 31. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. The abyss is mentioned two times in Scripture, one in Revelation 9, 1, and one in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. It's described as the place of confinement for Satan and his messengers, where they're going to wait Confined until the millennial reign of Christ. So they're saying, hey, Jesus, you know, we've got our, we've got our weekend passed. We're, we're having a good time out here. Don't send us to the abyss because then it's over for us. We're just going to be stuck and confined until it's all over. So they're negotiating. They realize that they're not in a position to win. Verse 32 A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. So we see here they couldn't resist Jesus, right? They didn't have the authority, they didn't have the power, so they asked for a concession. You know, let's remember this when you and I are tempted to fear. That when going toe-to-toe with the Son of God, (coughs) the best that evil can do is whimper and beg. And when you and I are facing, when we just watch the news and we're scared, there's some scary things out there. But when going toe-to-toe with the Son of God, all evil could do was whimper and beg. And so Jesus, like he says, I've already overcome the world, so don't fear. And we see here Jesus, just a man, right, in the sight of the people. He just shows up. Not only that, he's a rabbi. He doesn't belong here. We don't care who he is. We don't know who he is. He has no voice. So he gets their attention. Verse 33. And this is what he decides to do. And there were consequences. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, as Jesus had allowed them to do. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Now for me, it's really difficult to understand why would Jesus make this kind of concession? Because the collateral outcomes, they weren't very ideal. It cost the pig farmers a great deal of income, and it ended up in re- resulting in Jesus' ejection from the region. After Jesus grabbed their attention, the people decided that this greater power that had been revealed was far scarier than the former powers which had targeted their countrymen. Now we've seen this abroad, you've seen this at home. You know, this situation, these people, they've seen something amazing, something miraculous, and they're afraid. I mean, they, they did not like... The fact that this poor man was tormented by evil spirits. But overall, it didn't really have a lot to do with them. That was his problem. He he lived somewhere different. And they knew it was bad, but it didn't affect them. But now they're being confronted with a greater power. And they're afraid. And so we see that people are much more comfortable with familiar evils than they are with spiritual answers. Alcohol corruption, vice. We don't like it, but it's a fact of life, right? It's part of our society. And we're more comfortable with that. Just ask folks than there are spiritual answers. They don't want to consider Christ. They don't want to consider God. They don't like bad things, but spiritual things makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't really want to go there. And I think the reason why is they feel confident they can manage familiar evils, they don't need spiritual answers. I mean, if you don't want to become an alcoholic, don't drink alcohol, right? Or at least drink in moderation. If you don't want to become addicted to gambling, then don't gamble. I mean, the solution seems simple, right? Or at least limit your trips to the casino, huh? And don't buy too many lottery tickets. If you don't want to become corrupt, then don't inappropriately leverage your position for your own benefit. Or at least do it in ways that are a little bit gray. If you don't want to get into a bad relationship, avoid bad people. Seems simple, right? Or at least find someone bad who's good looking. Huh? Isn't that the way we think? If they're bad, at least they're good looking. So you, get, you, you win one, lose the other. You know, you, you and I are so good at managing risk and mitigating consequences that we don't feel like we need help until we do, right? We can manage it, we can handle it. We know there's bad stuff out there, but we can dabble in it, we can play with it, we can go there a little bit, but we can manage the outcome, because we're smart, until we can't manage any longer. You know, I I expect that we feel more in control when facing human-originated problems, right? If you know where it came from, then you feel like you can at least handle it. We understand people. We understand ourselves. We know how bad things happen. We know how sin works. And so we feel like we can kind of deal with it. You know, we understand them better and feel better able to cope with them until we find ourselves under the influence and eventually enslaved. And when you and I get enslaved and the shackles go on and we're stuck and we realize there's no way forward, then we're only left with drastic measures, right? Hide it. Divorce it. Attack it. Medicate it. Give in to it. Give up. And these folks fell into right, what we've just described. They said, We're so afraid, Jesus. We just want you to leave. We don't care what you have to offer. We're not buying. Be on your way, please. In other words, we're more comfortable with our demons than having to deal with what we've just witnessed. We might need to rethink something. We might need to believe something different. We might have to submit to someone. We might have to change. And so Jesus, we don't want anything to do with this, whatever we've just seen. And so here comes the key two verses. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. He's saying, Jesus, I'm so thankful. I just want to be with you. I want to to go where you are. I I just want to be in your presence. I want to worship you and follow you and be with you. But Jesus had something else in mind. Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus says, don't follow me. Represent me in a place where I don't have So we see also that God freed someone who was held against their will. And then thirdly, God freed him to do more than just follow. Because that's what he wanted to do. I just want to be with you, Jesus. I just want to go where you're at. I, just want, to, I want to listen to some more teaching. huh? I just want to be in the audience for a while and play it cool. Jesus had something else in mind. God freed him to do more than just follow. Sheep follow, right? Go over here, okay, go over there. Go over there, okay, we'll go over there. But God is calling you and I to do much more than that. He wants us to become shepherds. And you know, Jesus' disciples understood this. When they signed up to follow a rabbi, they knew that this wasn't just to be a part of the crowd. The reason that you follow a rabbi is that as his disciple, one day you will do what the rabbi is now doing. He's going to train you. He's going to prepare you to do what he's doing. That's part of the deal. And they understood this. They knew they weren't going to just be part of the crowd. They knew that one day they would be responsible to become what Jesus was. Someone who knew people. Someone who cared for people. Someone who led people. So the big idea for you and I today is that God found us. Right? We weren't even looking for, I don't know about you, when I found Christ, it wasn't me finding God. God found me. and I felt like uh, the old poem about the hound of the master's or the hound of heaven, where it's God was pursuing me. He wouldn't let up until he found me. And I wasn't even looking for him. And God freed us. You know, we might have varying degrees where we're lacking freedom, but we have the potential, because of Jesus, to be free. And so God found us and he freed us so we could do more than just follow. So what about you today? Have you been found? Have you become aware of what God's done for you? What God has provided for you through Jesus, through the cross? That salvation and forgiveness and freedom and hope and a future has all been provided for you? Have you been found yet by a God who is looking for you when you weren't even looking? Secondly, have you been freed? Have you even recognized the ways, the subtle ways in which you and I are being influenced by evil? Being influenced to separate ourselves, to withdraw from life. Being influenced to make decisions that are not in line with our values. Being influenced to kind of do what feels good. Do what, Do whatever we want to to not restrain ourselves at all and just do the things that come to mind. How are we being influenced? And have we yet been freed by the power of Jesus? And the last question, is: are you prepared to be a shepherd? Are you just wanting to be a sheep? Just, just, let me just follow you around, Jesus. Let me just be in the crowd. You know, you know that cool trick you do with the bread? Can you just make some more bread and, and I'll just try some? Do a little sampling. I just want to be around you, Jesus. But but don't ask me to lead anybody else. Are you preparing to be a shepherd? Think of all the people in our world today who aren't even looking for a God who is seeking. Think of all the people who have no shepherd like influence in their lives. You know them, you work with them. They just seem like lost, they don't even know where they're going. They don't even know how to get there. And they don't even realize that they're not free. And and they don't even realize that there's somebody seeking them and that they need to be found. If anything, people have friends who are kindly advising them to pursue things that are going to lead to them being enslaved. Whatever makes you happy, honey. Whatever makes you happy, hoss, go for it. Life is short. Live hard. Play hard. Get all there is to get out of life. But where does that lead? Does that lead to freedom? Does that lead to peace and hope in the future? Or does it lead to people being stuck and having nowhere else to go? And to desperate situations where they just don't know what else to do except something drastic. What if we were a group of found and free people who chose to leverage what we've been given in order to pay it forward. Famous movie with Kevin Spacey a few years back, Pay It Forward. And he's standing there in the classroom and he's talking to the kids and he's saying, you know, you might get to a place where you find life kind of disappointing. and Maybe you and I have been there. I know I've been there where you get to a place that's like, it's not what I thought it was going to be. But he said, the things that you don't like, take them. Find those areas that bother you, the areas that are not right, the people that need help, and then flip it upside down. Change it. And so here's this man that Jesus found him. Jesus freed him. And, and he's saying, thanks, thanks, thanks. Let me express my thanks, and let me just kind of follow you around. And Jesus said, I have a different plan. I want you to pay it for I want you to take the God-given influence that you have by being from this place. And I think it was intentional. Jesus knew he was just a passing through. He knew he had to do something dramatic to get their attention. I was struggling to figure out why would Jesus do it this way. But he got their attention. He rescued somebody that was from there. And then he took that person and sent them back to where they were from to be his witness. So maybe God's asking you and I to consider that today. Where are the places where he's planted you? The places where Dave Bodney showed up, they'd say, that's nice. So what? But the places where you live and where you work and where your friends are, and God's saying, it's time to pay it forward. I found you. You weren't even looking for me. I freed you. Now let me send you to find people. May to find people. Send us to free people. Send us to lead people. How might our world be a better place if we're willing to respond to Jesus in the way that this man was coaxed to and eventually didn't respond? And Scripture says there was a quite a big response. Because Jesus did something dramatic and then he had a witness to testify to what God had done personally for him. God, thank you for um, this lesson and uh, for this story. And there's so many rich lessons here, God, but we're so grateful that you seek. You're a seeking God. You, Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. And then God, in my life, you came and found me when I wasn't even looking for you. I wasn't interested in what you had to offer. And I didn't even realize how enslaved I was. And God, has taken some time. And I still have my relapses. But God, overall, I think I'm on a path to freedom. And it's because of you. And God, as a result of that, of the things that you've done for me that I couldn't do for myself, God, I want to respond to you with true gratitude. The kind of gratitude that takes the gifts that I've been given and seeks to give them to others, the, the kind of gratitude that, that inspires me to, to not just be blessed, but to be a blessing. Yeah. So we pray, each one of us pray with all of our hearts. Even though we feel so limited, God, we feel so small, we feel so incapable. How could God ever use me? God, we do believe that your strength is made perfect in weakness, and we know that you have divine appointments in store for each of us. And every day, and they might seem small, it might just be a handshake or a hug or a cup of coffee or a kind word, but God, you have plans for us. And we want to be open to that so that we can do more than just be a part of the crowd, but so that we can also be like Jesus was. It's in Jesus' name I pray.